John chapter 16, let's read from verse 7 down through verse 14. The Bible says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of the world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. The title of the message is an interesting one this evening. It's this. What does the spirit see when he takes a look at me? When the spirit of God looks at you, what does he see? Where are you as a Christian? Where are you going? Are you growing or are you just holding put? We're going to try to answer that question corporately tonight, but I would encourage you more importantly to answer it as an individual. Let's pray this evening. Lord, help us as we look, try to look at ourselves through the lens of how you look at us. And Lord, help us to give ourselves a fair evaluation and then Lord to go forth and allow you, the Holy Spirit of God, to make changes in our lives that will make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Let me begin with a question this evening. I want to ask a question directly to each of you, as though just you and I were going along on a car ride or sitting in my office. I'm going to look across the desk or ask and ask you this question. Are you a good Christian? Do you consider yourself to be a good Christian? Take a minute and give yourself a score over how you've done as a Christian the last six months. Assign yourself a letter grade, somewhere between A and F. Does that question make you a little uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable to try to answer it. As I put this message together this week, I tried to answer that question, and I had a hard time doing so. Anybody else here have a hard time answering that question? Uh, Let me ask it a different way. What makes a great Christian? Because we can't, we can't rate our own Christianity how we've done the last six months if we don't even understand what we should be doing to be a good Christian. If I were to put Jesus in the pulpit right now and have him tell us what makes a, good, a great Christian, what would he tell us? What would Jesus tell us is, are the necessary things to be a great Christian? Um, that word great, a good Christian, a great Christian, those words are relative. They're relative uh, in comparison to other things. So uh, another way of uh, maybe working ourselves around this question or to the answer, do, do you measure yourself and your Christianity against the world? Do you measure yourself against other Christians? Do you uh, measure yourself based on some person's approval, maybe the pastor or a man or woman in this church that you highly respect? Is your Christianity based on whether or not you have gained or earned their approval? Uh, Do you measure yourself based on the amount of time you spend in the word and prayer each day? Uh, Do you measure yourself based on Christian service? How do you quantify what makes a great Christian? Now, I'm not going to attempt to answer every one of these questions this evening. Um, There is definitely a dispute to be had between uh, uh, serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord and the amount of time we keep uh, we, 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 we try to put in balance our work for the Lord and our worship for the Lord. And we could go back and look at the story of Mary and Martha and see how Mary had chosen the better thing. But if all you do is worship the Lord on your knees and you never get up and do work for the Lord, I'd say you're out of balance as well. And so there's a balance to be struck there. And 
quantifying what makes a great Christian and figuring out how to uh, identify that or put that down uh, in perfect terms, to be honest, is quite difficult. Oftentimes, companies will bring in a consultant who will help an organization work their way through trouble spots. Uh, Those with the organization need a fresh perspective from the outside. I wonder how many of you here uh, that have worked in a company have ever seen consultants come in and offer a fresh perspective. A very, very important job. Um, I I have said uh, that at some point I would like to bring in a pastor who has been successful and is retired to come in and just sit in our pew for a month and walk around the office during the week and just uh, uh, quietly be the fly on the wall and watch staff meetings and take notes on how everyone keeps their schedule and uh, how our uh, volunteers work around the church. And I could sit down with that pastor after a month, that retired pastor, and let him give me solid advice of ways that we could improve. I think, uh, by the way, I think churches all around this country would be better off if they would take down their defense of what they think makes a great church and be open-minded to some other outside ideas. And now you have to be careful there, but I think the churches would be better off if they were to open up their mind and let someone else offer a fresh perspective. How about you as a Christian? Are you open to outside influences on maybe where you're struggling? I can take you to uh, the table I was sitting in in a hotel in Clear Spring, Maryland. I uh, We lived near a hotel there, and our church would put guests up. I could walk to the hotel uh, from our humble home there in Clear Spring, and uh, it was a sleep inn, if I remember right. And I can take you to the spot where I sat across from a man of God who uh, loves me very much, and I love him very much, and he uh, more or less put his finger in my face and said, this, this, and this in your life need to change. And boy, I was so glad he did that. Because I could not see where I was struggling. I needed someone from the outside to say, this is wrong in your life, this is wrong in your life, and this needs to change in your life. And you know what? I had to look across the table at him and swallow real hard and say, you're right. You're right. Those are areas where I need to grow. The Holy, uh, the Holy Ghost, also known as the Holy Spirit in Scripture, same person, two titles, was given to us by God, don't miss this, to be our spiritual consultant. That's what he does. He moved in. He took up residence inside of your heart for one reason and one reason alone. He wants to offer you a perspective on who you are as a person and Christian. And that perspective in every way is perfect. His advice, if you follow it, it will never let you down. And his plan is to make you into the best Christian you can be. So with that said, do you know what the Holy Spirit thinks about your version of Christianity? Have you stopped and considered what he thinks? Do you know where the Holy Spirit wants you to improve? Has he made you aware of your shortcomings? What good is a company with a consultant? They bring a consultant in. They pay him top dollar to bring in the top consultant. They cut him the check. They send him down the road and then they follow none of the advice that he gives. What a waste. Now, my friend, you didn't pay for this consultant that dwells inside of you, but he did. He paid the ultimate price of sending his son to the cross. And the day you got saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside your heart. He is a consultant that costs top dollar. In fact, what he costs cannot be quantified in dollars. He takes up residence inside of us and he very gently and quietly and daily and if not hourly offers his opinion on our Christianity. The question isn't, is the Holy Spirit doing his job The question is, are we listening to what he is telling us? 
God gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we might be made into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You have the world's best consultant, but are you letting him guide you through the process of being made into the image of Jesus Christ? I began the message by asking you, how would you rate your Christianity over the last six months? And it is difficult to say, because if you're like me, you're probably really hard on yourself. You probably say, well, I'd give myself a C or a D because of this area or that area. But can you look back over your shoulder the last six months or a year or even six years and see where you have grown in some area of your life? would be a really good idea for those of you in here that are married, or maybe if you're a child or a teenager, to sit down with your mom or dad and to look across that person who loves you so much and ask them this question, where have you seen me grow spiritually? Where have you seen me stall spiritually? And don't get your feelings hurt when they answer the question. Allow them to look you in the eye and give you an honest answer. Better yet, get on your knees and ask the Holy Spirit of God to show you where you have stalled spiritually and where you can go and grow for him. The famous pastor and evangelist D.L. Moody was to have a campaign in England. An elderly pastor protested, why do we need this Mr. Moody? He's uneducated, he's inexperienced, that sort of thing. What does he think he knows anyway? What does he think he is anyway, rather? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? A younger, wiser pastor rose and responded, No, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. This same preacher, Mr. Moody, once declared in a sermon, he said, Listen closely, this is, this is rich, this is intense. He said, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled. We must be emptied before we can be filled. I propose that as a born again child of God, you should stop regularly and consider what the spirit of God thinks about the way you are living your life, about the progress you are making, about the habits that you have and about the devotion and tender heart you have for your heavenly father. We're going to look at a handful of truths this evening as we consider the Holy Spirit of God as he relates to our Christian growth. As we consider this question, what does the spirit see when he takes a look at me? Notice point number one this evening, the Christian's gift, the Christian's gift. Look down with me at John chapter 16 and look at verse number seven. The Bible says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter uh, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So Jesus is telling his disciples here, they're saddened, they're weary, they're concerned. Uh, I believe here Jesus is approaching the uh, Mount of Olives. If not there, they're on their way there. He's getting, getting ready to leave eight of them at the base there and walk Peter, James, and John up a little further. Well, he'll leave them and eventually uh, go and pray. And uh, we have an intense prayer there in John 17 by our Savior. But here he is saying these to these troubled, wearied disciples. He's saying, listen, I know you love me, but I need to go so, so that I can give you the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. That gift would later be realized by John, one of the 11 that heard him there in John 16. And John would write in the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. 
imagine John there that evening was sad at the thought of Jesus leaving them and being taken away from them. And he heard in theory that the spirit of God was going to come. But now here he is writing in first John, hey, the spirit of God has come and he is just as great, if not greater than I could have ever imagined. Jesus gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Letter A, notice a personal gift, a personal gift. Turn in your Bibles with me. Hold your place in John 16. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Last year we did a series of sermons on the Holy Spirit. I brought out this point then, but I think it bears being brought out again here. That throughout the different eras or dispensations of the Bible, God has assigned a different part of the Trinity to be the main one to be in contact or the main influencer with His creation or with mankind during that time. Throughout the Old Testament, it was God the Father that worked directly with mankind. You can go through the Old Testament and you can find where different folks had open conversation, vocal uh, conversations with God the Father. And you may notice that no one has open vocal conversations with God anymore. You may wonder why that is. Well, when the Old Testament closed, the New Testament began, and there we have the second part of the Trinity. He was the main one to interact with humanity. God uh, was realized among man in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And for 33 years, Jesus Christ was the one that had direct Contact the, the part of the Trinity that had direct contact with mankind. And then Jesus would ascend to heaven and he would send the most intimate and personal of gifts in the person of Holy, of, of the Holy Ghost to not only influence us or influence our leaders, but to live inside of us directly. You understand that in the Old Testament, God the Father only spoke to a select few and those few then led the masses. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ was only really seen and handled by a few thousand, maybe a a few tens of thousands of Israelites that would have at some point come in contact with him. And then there was a crowd of 500 and then 140 and then specifically 12 and then more intimately three that Jesus had a, a direct contact with. But then the Holy Spirit is sent and it isn't just a few leaders. It isn't just 500 boy. Every single believer gets to have God living inside of him or her leading and guiding and directing in their life. What a great time to be alive. What a great era of the Bible to live in. Look at first Corinthians chapter three. Look at verse 16. It says, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. Imagine you had an old, rundown, dilapidated uh, castle that is on the verge of being condemned. Suddenly, the castle is brought, bought by a royal family. Great money and time uh, are put into cleaning it up and renovating it, fixing the structure of it, and making it come alive once again. During this summer, the king comes and dwells in this castle. While he is there, he, uh, he, uh, while it is, he is there, it is the residence of the most powerful man in that country. We were on the verge of destruction. Our soul had been condemned because we had not believed in the Son of, G- of Son of God. And the day you got saved, boy, the castle of your heart became uh, owned by a whole, uh, rather by a whole new ownership. And you were cleaned up. You were renovated. You were made anew. And the spirit of God moved inside of you. You're not some castle being dwelled in by some king. You are a temple being dwelled in by the king of kings and lord of lords. It's a personal gift. I feel what happens oftentimes is we have heard about the Holy Ghost, we've read about the Holy Ghost, we've, we've, we've been under sermons preached about the Holy Ghost, and we begin to yawn about the Holy Ghost. It is a big deal that God lives inside of me and you. It is a major deal. Listen, it is the most personal gift that could be given. I oftentimes will wonder uh, what it would take to get some people to come to church on Sunday evening. And you're all here. So none of this won't apply to anybody in the room. 
Uh, but I have, I have often thought that it would take the Lord Jesus Christ as the guest speaker on Sunday evening to get some people to come out. And even then, I think some people may stay home because it just doesn't fit their schedule. Uh, I have oftentimes wondered what it would take. And I've often wondered that what if we were to have like some big sports uh, uh, icon uh, that was going to be uh, appearing in our building or some big musical icon appearing, if, if that would excite the masses and get them uh, to flood into our building? What if we were to tell everyone that uh, showed up and we were able to convince everyone that showed up on a Sunday evening that we were going to give everyone that showed up a million dollars? I wonder how many people we'd be able to get to get into the building. I bet the folks who were here to, this morning, whatever excuse they have to not be here tonight, that excuse would cease to exist and they somehow would have found a way to be back. You all uh, with me here uh, this evening and we, we, we do what our priorities are. We do where our priorities are. And I have to say this evening that we have the spirit of God who is far uh, ought to be far more popular than a sports legend icon or music icon or Hollywood elite would be. He's definitely more holy than any of those uh, people would be. Uh, we have someone whose value is far, uh, far exceeds a million dollars and God in heaven. The day you got saved, he handed you the gift, a very personal gift of the Holy Ghost to live inside of you. It isn't. It isn't just that God is powerful enough to save you. He's personal enough to sanctify you. And aren't you glad that he is? It's a personal gift. Letter B, notice a powerful gift. A powerful gift. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We all know it. I believe most of us know it by heart. But listen intently. It says, but ye shall receive. What's the next word? Power. What is it? You shall receive power. Now when? After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Now, um, uh, uh, oftentimes the rest of Acts 1-8 is preached. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. That's what we're to do with that power. But I want to focus just for a moment here on this. The Holy Ghost and power are synonymous. They are synonymous. If the Holy Ghost is in charge in your life, if he is the one calling the shots in your day, if he is the one leading your thoughts, he's leading your actions, then my friend, you are living a life with the power of God in charge of your life. If you are in charge and you are the one calling the shots, let me pause here. For some of you this evening, it isn't the Holy Ghost calling the shots and it really isn't you calling the shots. You are allowing other people to call the shots for you in your life. Who's in charge? If the Holy Ghost is not only consulting you, but you are taking that advice and you're following it, my friend, there is power to be found in that. An American with an English gentleman was viewing the Niagara Whippoorwill, uh, rather, let me get my tongue working right here this evening. An American with an English gentleman was viewing the Niagara Whirlpool Rapids. When he said to his friend, come and I'll show you the greatest unused power in the world. And, and taking him to the foot of Niagara Falls, there he said, it is the greatest unused power in the world. Ah, not so, my brother, was the reply. The greatest unused power in the world is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Boy, we talk about him. We preach about him. We read about him. We know he lives here. It's a gift from God. But is it a gift that is powerfully being used? The beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit of God is that he's not bossy. Those of you that have been around me long enough, you know that at times I can be a little bossy. Uh, I have a, I'm a very dogmatic soul. And I know how I want things done. And, and I'm very particular at times on how I want things done. And that's something I have to work on and dial back. Uh, my children have learned to put up with it. And I pray it doesn't push them to a brink of rebellion one day. My wife just bosses me right back, and so we're square. Um, uh, that's not true. But um, uh, the Holy Spirit of God's not bossy. He's going to recommend. He's going to point out. But at the end of the day, you get to make the call whether you do it his way or your way. That God just puts the spirit, his spirit in us to help guide us. And if we will follow him, it is a powerful gift. 
Number two, notice the Christian's guide. We saw the Christian's gift. Notice the Christian's guide. Go back to John 16 with me uh, this evening and look at verse number 13. It says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will. What are those next two words? Guide you. Right? Let's start over and let's make sure everyone's on the same page. I maybe jumped in before you were ready. When I, when I pause, read the next two words. Here we go. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever uh, he shall hear that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. So the spirit of God, he moves in and indwells us. And then he wants to guide us. He wants to lead us. Romans eight fourteen says this for as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Notice letter a, a guide to understanding a guide to understanding. Uh, look with me, if you will, uh, or rather, let me just read for you, John. Or, no, you're there. John 16. Look back at verse 13. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth is come. He will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He guides us into understanding. Have you ever been amazed at how many different religions there are in the world? Have you ever been amazed at how many brands of quote unquote Christianity there are? How many different options there are out there? And I've had many people tell me, well, uh, I don't, there are so many different people that claim so many different things. Uh, how can we know who's right and who's wrong? And they use that almost as an excuse to go uh, live however they want. Uh, I got to tell you this uh, evening, I'm not a Baptist because I was raised uh, in the Baptist church world. Uh, shortly uh, to, before moving to Baltimore, I was a 16-year-old boy. I was in the 10th grade, and I was sitting uh, in a typing class. And uh, our typing teacher uh, did many other things in the school that year. But I, I don't know if, uh, for one reason or another, had to quit and wasn't around anymore. And so we, as 10th graders, there were five of us, we just... We just learned how to type on our own. And there was not a teacher. I don't, that probably wasn't wise. There was not a teacher put back in there to watch us. We were considered a mature bunch. And I did learn how to type that year. So it all worked out. Uh, and I use what I learned in 10th grade even today. So praise God for that. But I remember one of those days where we were a little more chatty. And the kids started to gang up on me. And I was sort of labeled as that spiritual leader in the school. And I had no problem with standing up for what was right and bossing everyone around and telling them to knock it off. Amen. Um, and so the kids started to gang up on me a little bit. And I remember um, uh, one of them said to me, where does it say in the Bible that rock music is a sin? And I couldn't answer their question. And so I had to concede that I didn't know where it said in the Bible that rock music was a sin. And that question sent my faith into a tailspin. Oh, I never gave up being saved because you can't do that. But I remember going home that, that afternoon and feeling as though I was in a faith crisis. One question had set me to a place where I began to question everything. Remember another time I was sitting in a camp and I remember thinking this thought, how do we know that we're right? How do we know that the Mormons aren't right or the Jehovah's Witnesses are not right or the Catholics are not right or the Muslims? How do we know that they don't? Have it right. And I don't remember one word that that speaker said at that camp that evening. I just remember thinking that there are a whole lot of sincere mom and dads that are raising their kids in another religious system. And they are just as convinced that they're right as my parents are that they're right. How am I to know that this is right? And, and things were working to a head. And I remember climbing uh, into the Bible and even beginning to question whether or not the Bible was true. And uh, I remember uh, walking down a journey of, of, of working my way to a place where I believed what I believed, not because my parents told me to, not because some pastor told me to, but because of what the Bible had said. Can I tell you who was my agent that helped me get through that? The Holy Spirit of God. He was leading me into all truth. Now, there's a passage in 1 John that talks about how that you don't need a man to teach you anything. You just need the Spirit of God. And that doesn't mean we don't need pastors. Clearly, the Bible 
has a lot to say about our need of, of, uh, of, of spiritual leaders. And much of a case can be made for that. You say, well, how do you justify the two passages? If when I preach, the Spirit of God does not confirm it in your heart, and it's not confirmed through Scripture, then you know what you need to do? You need to toss it out. If I get up here and give my opinion, and it isn't backed up in the Bible, and it isn't backed up by the Spirit of God and or the Spirit of God, then you just take it as man's opinion. And that's why the Bible says they search the Scriptures daily, speaking of the Bereans. It is the Spirit of God's job to guide us to understanding. Notice, let her be a guide to utterance. It isn't enough. I, I really want you to hear what I'm about to say. It isn't enough to just know the Bible inside and out. I have met folks, boy, they, they, they practically have this thing memorized. They sit at home and for hours and hours they study and, and listen, I'm not putting anyone down that does that. I want to make this clear. But they know the Bible so well, but they hardly ever share what they know with anyone. You all know what a Dead Sea Christian is? Someone who takes in and takes in and takes in and takes in, but they don't give out like the Sea of Galilee. And you know what you become as a Dead Sea Christian? You become salty. You become salty. Uh, you become uh, a salt that is really worthless. God does not just want you to understand. He wants you to share what you understand. He wants you to tell the world around you uh, a guide to, un, uh, to utterance. He guides us into what to say, what to say, a guide to utterance, what to say. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 11 says this. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. He's saying here, listen, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus is telling his disciples and you're going to get in trouble with the religious phonies and they're going to drag you into some kangaroo court and they're going to have some sort of banana republic set up and they're going to try to take you to task. Don't let that scare you in the moment when that happens. The spirit of God is going to tell you what it is you are to say. Many Christians are afraid to share their faith. And I, I will say that I, I understand that that fear is real. And I don't mean in any way to belittle that fear. But I have to tell you that if you have a testimony and you got saved, you can start by sharing your testimony. You can tell other people what Jesus did when he saved you. And you know what I have found in all of my years of going out and sharing my faith with others is that oftentimes I'll end up taking a road in my sharing or I'll follow a plan in my sharing that I didn't intend to follow. The Spirit of God is speaking through me and to others. There have been many times where I've put a sermon together and I have my notes structured and I have illustrations and I have Bible verses and all of a sudden God will move me to say something totally different. That is the Spirit of God who is uttering forth the truth that has been placed in me through the Word and through the preaching of the Word from other people. What to say. Not only is it an utterance of what to say, but where to say it. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 says, Now, when they, speaking of Paul and his team, when they had gone through uh, uh, Phrygia in the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Now, I need to move on here, but I just want to add here that the Spirit of God leads us geographically where to go. How many of you here this evening have more than one way? That you can take to work and it will get you there about the same time. Would you hold up your hand? You have more than one path. Do you know that the Spirit of God cares about what path you take to work? Do, do you ever get in your car and say, Lord, which way would you have me take today? How would you have me go? You say, well, well, why would I pray that? Do you know the Spirit of God may lead you around an accident that you would have otherwise gotten into? Do you know that on your way home, you may have to stop and get gas and you may stop in a gas station. The Lord intends for you to hand someone a gospel track. And had you gone a different way, you would have missed that person where you go. Now, they wanted to go into Asia Minor and preach. And the spirit of God said, no, you can't go there. You can't go there. I have another place for you to go. By the way, shortly after this is where we get the Macedonian call. And much of the books written by Paul to the churches are churches in Macedonia that he would go and start. Had he not followed the Lord's 
plan, geographical plan of where to go in utter, boy, the landscape of Christianity would look far different today. And it's even possible that you and I wouldn't even be saved. You understand the importance of following not only what to say, but where to say it. We get into our uh, vehicles on Tuesdays and Saturdays and we go out to make visits or to go soul winning. And I have to say the Lord cares about where you go. He cares about who you speak with. He cares about uh, 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 where uh, that, that you follow his plan. He is your guide. He is your guide. Here's a good question for you to answer. If we circle back to the beginning of the sermon, how good of a Christian are you? One way for you to know how to answer that question is this. How regularly am I aware of the Spirit of God leading me in the details of my life? To you children in here this, this, this evening, do you know God cares about the order in which you do your homework? He does. He, he cares about uh, your, your attitude and where you sit at the lunch table in school. He cares about those things. You say, but pastor, really, at the end of the day, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to be the same person. If day after day after day, you will follow God's leading in your life, you will wake up one day and you will be a far superior person, a far a more. You'll be far farther into being made into the image of Jesus Christ than you could have ever thought possible. Is he your guide or are you your own guide? Number one, we see, saw the Christian's gift. Number two, the Christian's guide. Notice number three, the Christian's guilt. The Christian's guilt. Go back to John chapter 16 and look at verse number seven. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Look at verse eight. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. And of righteousness and of judgment of sin, because they believe not on me of righteousness, because I go to my father and ye, ye see me no more of judgment, because the prince of the world is judged. Now, let's remember the the setting here uh, of this being given. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Do you remember when he had fed the, the multitudes and then uh, shortly thereafter, they're going across the sea and he's he's challenging them in an area and they say, I wonder if he's getting on to us because we forgot to bring the food. And he says, hey, guys, where's your faith? This has nothing to do with food. I'm trying to bring you along to a place where you can grow and go. But your mind is on the physical. What I'm getting at here is over and over and over again, as Jesus walked the earth with these disciples, it was him that reproved. He said, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to reprove the world of sin. What does that mean? That means that he goes around and he convicts the lost to be saved. That's what that means. The sin of unbelief. Aren't you glad that when you share the, your faith with someone, the Holy Spirit is giving you the words to say here, but he's also in their heart, knocking on their door saying, listen to what he's saying. Listen to what she's saying. What, that's the truth. Open your heart and let me in. Boy, he's working on both sides. Why? Because he's reproving the world of sin. And then notice there of righteousness. Why? Because I'm going to my father. I'm not going to be here to reprove the world of righteousness. Sometimes the spirit of God comes along and he knocks on my heart and he says, he says, Richard, he says that action right there. It isn't sin, but it's keeping you from being who I want you to be. You know what he's doing? He's reproving me to make me more righteous of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. Turning your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter nine, Hebrews chapter nine and verse 14. We're going to finish out the message uh, here with this verse. Hebrews chapter nine and verse 14. We've been going through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday evenings. I was away this past Wednesday. I heard that Pastor Morales filled in and did a wonderful job and we're thankful for him. Um, and by the way, uh, while I was away, I had a great time. I got to go to a church up there. The Chippios were gracious enough to let me stay in their place. And I want to take a moment and thank you all for opening your home up. It was cold up there and I had the heat up high. So I apologize that the utility bill is a little high, but we had a great time and, and uh, I had a chance to walk with the Lord a little bit extra and 
uh, do some reading and preparing for next year. Uh, but nonetheless, on Wednesday evenings, uh, we were, we've been going through the book of Hebrews and we found verse 14 in our study. And boy, it's one of these verses. If you haven't been here on Wednesday evenings, or maybe you're in another part of the building on Wednesday evenings, this verse is awesome. You find all three persons of the Trinity doing a work together within the same verse. Look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot to God? Boy, we have God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father all working together to redeem our souls. Now look what the end result is here. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the point I want to make. You can take your conscience if you're lost and you can so sear that conscience to where you don't feel guilty over anything you do wrong anymore. You can do and live in a way where your conscience just doesn't bother you anymore. I think of a, a couple who is living together prior to marriage and prior to salvation. You know what? You accept it as the societal norm. It's just what everybody is doing and uh, it, uh, it, it must be okay or everyone wouldn't do it. And yeah, maybe there was a little bit of twinge of your conscience that bothered you for a moment, but you kept doing it and doing it, doing, and then this conscience is seared and then that couple gets saved. And what happens immediately conviction begins to set in. Why? Because their conscience has been purged from dead works. The same thing can be said about smoking cigarettes or drinking beer. And by the way, a lot of lost people know this. That's why they don't get saved. I remember I was a Spanish pastor in uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland, and I was in inner city, inner, inner city Baltimore. And we had a man who was uh, renting a room out uh, from some folks. And we were there visiting him. While we were there, he had been visiting our Spanish church. While we were there visiting him, we were uh, also visiting with the folks that he lived with. And uh, uh, two guys lived there. And there's no other way to put it. They were drunks or borrachos. And uh, we're sitting there. And I, I was giving them the gospel. And I got down to the end. And there were beer bottles all over the place. And maybe even a hint of alcohol on the breath. And I looked at the man. And I was witnessing. To him, and I said to him, Why won't you get saved? And you know what he said to me? Because if I get saved, then the Spirit of, or he didn't say the Spirit of God, but the idea was if I get saved, I'm going to have to probably give up my drinking. And I like my drinking too much to give it up. They know. They know. The Spirit of God was put inside of you for many reasons to comfort you, to care for you. To guide you to bear his fruit ninefold in your life. But he was also put there to put a finger in your proverbial nose and say, that's got to go. Now, again, he's not mean about it, but I can tell you he's persistent about it. How many of you get that he's persistent about it? Boy, there have been times where I have struggled with sin for many years. And every single time I've done wrong... The Spirit of God's been down inside of me going, that's not right. That's not right. You're a saved man. You can't sear your conscience. I've freed it from dead works. And it's going to continue to prod you to get rid of that so that you can serve the living God. Let me say this evening that if you feel guilt when you do wrong, the answer isn't to ignore the guilt. The answer is to drop to your knees and go to the Lord and ask Him to help you past the struggle that you're having. Number four, and lastly, we see the Christian's goal. The Christian's goal. What is the Christian's goal? Letter A, notice, submission. Submission. I've spent a lot of time talking about this in the last year and a half, but this is one of those uh, horses that I feel as though I need to continue to is beat the right word. Beat that horse. I need to continue to drive that nail down deep. Can I tell you why we need to talk about submission? Because it's something that none of us in here are naturally good at. None of us. We're all proudful. We all want to do it our way. We don't want to follow the leading of the Lord. We don't want to follow, especially when it's tough to do. We don't want to do it that way. We want to do it our way. It is not my place to try to make myself into the greatest Christian I can make myself into. Because in my flesh, I'm going to fail. I have tried for many, many years as a young Christian man into my 20s and 
even up to approaching 30, to try to make myself into the best Christian I could make myself into. Can I tell you that a lot of preaching on the exterior, a lot of the stop smoking and stop drinking and uh, stop running and living a loose lifestyle and put on a suit or put on a a skirt or dress and, and buy a Bible and carry that to church and clean up your language. Listen, that's all focusing on the outside of the glass. And God says this. He says, if the inside is filthy, you can make the outside look great, but there's only so much you can do because the filth is just going to keep overflowing and staining the outside of the glass again. The goal in the Christian life is to submit to the Lord in here and get this cleaned up in here. And if you'll get the inside cleaned up, boy, those outside habits just begin to fall off on their own. Boy, for years, I tried to get the exterior down and look right and talk right. And while I'm in front of my parents and while I'm in front of the youth pastor and while I'm in front of the dorms, uh, in front of the dorm supervisor at college and while I'm in front of my boss as a, an assistant pastor or school teacher, uh, I want to make sure I give off the reputation of being a solid Christian. And I have to say that I was genuinely trying to be a good Christian, but the problem was that I was not yielded to the spirit of God and I was not letting him change me from the inside out. And I believe many Christians make that same mistake today. They submit to what will make them accepted by the group, but they don't submit to what will make them accepted by the Holy Spirit of God. Are you with me this evening? Are are you hearing me this evening? We must submit to the advice, to the convicting hand of the Holy Spirit of God. James 4, 7 says this. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And what will he do? He will flee from you. We must learn to submit. That is, that is kindergarten of the Christian life. It is kindergarten of the Christian life. If God, let me just ask a personal question I want you to try to answer inside of your own heart right now. If the Holy Spirit of God came to you this evening and said, that right there has got to go. Would you buck and push away? Would you bristle? Or would you say, Lord, it's going to be a struggle. It's a habit in my life. It's entrenched. But I'm willing to take the journey of having you defeat that within me. Is that where you are? Are you, are you aloof to the conviction? Or are you open to change? Letter B, notice sanctification. Now, i, I got to tell you. I'm not going to submit to anybody unless I believe they have my best, uh, uh, my, my best at heart. I'm not just going to go submit to someone so that they can abuse me and take advantage of me. And, and listen, this is, by the way, this is a reason why a lot of wives struggle in their marriages. Because they submit to their husband only to have their husband take advantage of them and run them over. It's a whole lot easier for my wife to come under and follow uh, my plan for her, especially where we may headbutt on something or disagree on something. It's a lot easier for her to come under and follow if she knows that I have my, her best in, intent in, in my heart. Can I tell you this evening that no one has your best at heart more than the Holy Spirit of God? He's not pointing things out in your life that need to go because he hates you or he wants to take advantage of you or he wants to run you over. He's trying to turn you into the image of Jesus Christ. Why would we buck that process? First Corinthians chapter six, verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. This is not going to be, when I get home, this will not be the most popular point of my sermon. But I'm going to make it anyway because um, uh, I, I feel as though it's, it's the appropriate thing to do here. When I married my wife, we'd only been, she'd only been saved about a year. She got saved in, or rather she'd only been saved about three years. She got saved in 2004. We uh, met in 2005 and uh, we, uh, uh, we married in 2007. When we married, I could see a lot of things in my wife's life that were very immature in the Lord. Obviously, she'd only been saved three years. I had been saved since I was four, and so I had been saved about 20 years. Now, I remember seeing things in her life and thinking, 
why can't she get that figured out? Where, where is this going to go? Where is this going to take her or us? And I remember uh, in my, in my uh, ignorance early on in the marriage, pointing the, make, the mistake of pointing them out and challenging her on those. And that was not the right way to handle it. It was, it was out of bounds on my part. And I got some advice, uh, uh, not directly, but just through preaching and, 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 and book reading to, to get on my knees and pray for her. And I stand here today, I stand here today and I have watched... As she has submitted her heart to the Spirit of God, I have watched as He has turned her into a finer Christian than I am today. He's changed her. And it would be too personal for me to stand up here and share all the ways that He's changed her. This past week while I was away, I spent some time in prayer for my family. I spent quite a bit of time in prayer for each one of my family. When I came to my wife, I mentioned her name in prayer and tears began to stream down my cheeks. Because I know the sanctifying work that God has done in her life since she has submitted herself to the Lord. Now, none of us are where we ought to be or where we could be. And all of us have room to go and grow. But I have watched as she has submitted and the Lord is sanctified. Can I tell you, God's not a respecter of persons. If he can do that for her, he can do that for you. He can, if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. What is the end game? Is the end game to be cleaned up so we can snub our nose at the world or other Christians and talk about how much better we are than them? Oh no, we're to be cleaned up so we can walk with the Lord and we can be, let her see, a part of His service. His service. Look back at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. We see the science of our salvation laid out so beautifully and compactly in one verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offer Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works. Why? Why? Why does he go through all the trouble of sending Jesus to the cross so that the Spirit can take the blood of Jesus and clean us up so we can be presented spotless before God? Why does he go through the process of doing that? The question is answered in the last few words of the verse. To serve the living God. To serve the living God. We're not cleaned up to be some sort of trophy for the world to go, ooh, look how shiny and cleaned up he is. We're cleaned up so we can go shine the light of God's love on the lives of others. You know, really, the Holy Spirit is a microcosm of who we ought to strive to be in a lot of ways. Back in, back in John chapter 16, he said this, Jesus said this, he said, The Spirit of God is going to glorify me. That's what the, he said. Jesus said that about the Spirit of God. Interestingly enough, the Spirit of God is almost like a lamp that shines right on Jesus. And the focus is not on the source of the light. The focus is on who the light lands on. It lands on Jesus. That lamp now shines into your heart. It's exposing the bad and it's exposing as well as the good. And the question is this, what will you do with what you see? might be tough to answer the question, am I a good Christian? But it is easy to answer the question, am I submitted to the Spirit of God? When the Holy Spirit of God looks at you, what does he see? Does he see a Christian that's making strides in the right direction? Or does he see a Christian that's just plateaued? Or does he see a Christian that's backsliding? Let's make sure that we're letting the Spirit of God do a work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we pray you would take the truths that have been presented from your word tonight and may we all be challenged by them. Lord, may we take a new look at ourselves and see us, try to see ourselves the way you see us. And Lord, where you lead us to grow and to change, may we, may we be willing to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.